Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, we're in our second to last week of the book of Mark, and uh, we're going to pr- plow through quite a long passage today. Um, it's Mark uh, 14, verses 1 to 15, verses 15. Um, and so you don't hear my voice for too long today. Um, uh, I'm going to have Kian read for me. Uh, before I read, I'm going to pray again. And then um, uh, when I'm... when Kian's finished reading, she'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and can we thank God for his word and say, thanks be to God. Um, So yeah, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are indeed our savior, Um, you are our servant king, and you are the son of God. Um, We glorify you this day uh, because uh, we recognize that uh, on this day, the Lord's day, you resurrected from the dead. Um, You are unlike anyone else. And so today, may we look to you, may we have our hearts um, focused on you. Um, Would you speak to us? Um, Would you speak to us through the head and to the heart? Would you draw our heart deeper into yours um, and motivate us, inspire us uh, this week and beyond to live a life that is uh, in service um, and in love to you? Bless us with your word. Do a work among us, even in just the hearing of your word. Um, And we pray, Lord, that your presence would dwell and rest upon all of us, uh, all of us in the room um, and all of us at home also. Uh, So we give you all the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, church. So I'll be reading from Mark chapter 14, verse 1, to Mark chapter 15, verse 15. Um, I'll be reading from the ESV, and the words will be on the screen. Okay. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you, whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he saw an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. 
And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he went on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, 
We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again saying to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to him to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Kian. Very helpful. Read it better than I would. <laughs> um, so this text brings us to the nearer to the end of the book of Mark, where we will see the climax of Jesus' ministry, which is his crucifixion and resurrection. And it progresses in nine scenes that I think are centered around three events that establish or inaugurate Jesus as king. Um, and so uh, it begins with the conspiracy to kill Jesus. Uh, Jesus is then anointed, which marks him out as God's chosen king, hence why we call Jesus the Messiah. Messiah is another word for the anointed one, God's anointed king. Um, Judas agrees to betray, to betray Jesus. After that, the Passover is celebrated and the Lord's Supper is instituted. Uh, and uh, in this context, I might argue that the, the, 
Lord's Supper here is the royal meal that celebrates the uh, inauguration of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. Uh, Jesus then, and the disciples then go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus is then arrested. Uh, he is condemned before the Sanhedrin, which would be the Jewish Supreme Court. Um, and there, he, uh, there is the, the proclamation of his kingly status when he says, uh, uh, I am. Um, and so that, again, is, a, is the, the third kingly uh, inauguration kind of event. Um, and then Peter denies Jesus. And then lastly, he is condemned before Pilate uh, and then presented before the people and condemned by all in a, com in a complete sense. So just so you have bearings, that's how the text progresses. And um, as we think through the passage, I'd like you to be asking yourself, what kind of king do I think Jesus is? If he is anointed and then uh, he has the royal meal and then he is proclaimed to be king and then his kingdom will come after his death and resurrection, um, what kind of king do we think he is? If he's going to be our king uh, and we're going to be under him, what kind of king do we think he is? How, how does he relate to us as king? The world right now, and always, has had a, a huge problem with people in power because of the danger that it usually brings to those who live under the rulers in power. And so you might say, heavy is the head uh, uh, that wears the crown, uh, but you could equally or perhaps even more say, heavy is the burden placed on the people who exist under the crown wearer. Um, and those in, in power usually are well, I won't say usually, but they can be often described as self-serving and oppressive and uh, indifferent, dishonest, untrustworthy. Um, and we can feel the effect of that. Um, but not only in power, but in our personal relationships, uh, whether it be friends, family, or even our, our spouses, who are kind of, I guess, the closest if, you, if, you, if you're married, um, we are aware of the danger of simply trusting people. Uh, because they will unavoidably, uh, in some way, let us down because people lie and they sin against us. And this breaks down our relationships, sometimes in ways that are irreparable. Um, and this can lead to loneliness and crushing rejection and grief. You know, sometimes when a relationship is ended, it can feel almost like a death, or if a relationship or a friendship, it can feel quite like death. You begin to miss the person. You don't see the person anymore. Yet the reverse is true because uh, these things don't just happen to us, uh, but we equally cannot be trusted uh, because we lie and let others down. We sin against others, and we cause relationship breakdown, uh, leaving others that are near to us feeling lonely and deserted and grieved. But what does Jesus show of himself as our king and his relation to us? And it's a lot of verses. I think it's 87 in total. Um, if I could sum up the general idea of the passage or the general thoughts of the passage, I come away with the fact that though Jesus is rejected, he is so deeply committed to the Father's will and so deeply committed to us that instead of being a dangerous ruler or a dangerous friend, 
he, in fact, accepts full danger on himself. And he accepts relational, social, and physical danger on himself. And by his rejection, that is his being betrayed and deserted and then condemned, he grants us the opposite of what he suffers. So, though he is betrayed, we are guaranteed his steadfast devotion. Though he is deserted, he promises abiding presence. And though he suffers brutal condemnation, he grants us for free, rescuing, freeing, liberating redemption and peace with God. He, he is not only an example of faithful suffering, but his very suffering is the means by which he puts into effect a salvation that is irrevocably, irrevocably liberating for those who trust in him and place faith in him. And so I've kind of sectioned off the passage into two blocks. Now the first is from verses 1 to 52, which would be that Jesus is betrayed, deserted, yet he is committed. And then the second is uh, the rest of the passage um, up to verse 15 of chapter 15, which is Jesus is condemned, rejected, and redeeming. And so we'll kind of walk through the text as a whole, but so you have a mental picture of what happens. Um, I do urge that if you have a Bible to refer to it throughout. Um, so from verse 1 to 11, <clears throat> in these beginning verses, we meet three seekers. Um, so we meet the religious leaders who seek to kill Jesus, uh, Judas who seeks an opportunity to betray him for money, and in the middle of those two, there is a woman who seeks to express her love and a devotion to Jesus by anointing him, which prepares him for burial, um, but also marks him out as the king. And in all of the text uh, today, this anointing is the only pleasant thing that happens to Jesus in the whole passage, which is why it's so significant. This woman, <clears throat> who is socially somewhat of an outsider, uh, for some reason has a greater sensitivity to what is about to happen. She, she's Mary from Bethany, who, who is the um, sister, sister of Lazarus um, and sister of Martha, the one who was always sitting at Jesus' feet, so she probably was quite a keen listener. Um, and so she has this greater sensitivity to Jesus um, and what is about to happen to him. And she breaks an alabaster box, which is a special container for fragrance or perfume or ointment. And then she anoints him with it. Uh, and he says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. So now during the Passover, it's custom to give to the poor, which is why the disciples don't like, that, don't like what she does. Um, but what she does is not wasteful. Uh, and in fact, she is not negligent of the poor because she gives to the poorest one in the room. Look, Jesus in, in this moment is the poor man in Psalm 41. Um, and that psalm begins with, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Hence why uh, when the gospel is proclaimed, this woman is also proclaimed. Because she, in fact, has um, um, uh, considered the ultimate poor. And he's poor, he's a poor man in, in Psalm 41 because Jesus' experience is described 
um, throughout that psalm. So in verse 5 to 8 of that psalm, um, it mirrors what happens to Jesus. Um, so from verse, verse 5, it says, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. And all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. So you have uh, the, the chapter beginning with the, con the conspiracy to kill Jesus. After the anointing, you have Judas who then agrees to. And so this is literally a picture of <clears throat> Jesus' enemies wanting him to die and whispering and conspiring against him. And this woman considers him in this, in this um, I, don't, you know, I wouldn't say that she, she knows exactly to the full extent what is happening, but there's an extent to which she is quite acquainted and understands what is happening to Jesus and what, what he's feeling. And so in the eyes of others, our devotion to Jesus can look uh, useless and meaningless and a waste of time. Um, and others might suggest that there is some sort of higher good than our devotion to Jesus some kind of higher good for society that is not wasteful of time and resources. But even when it doesn't seem to pay off, devotion to Jesus um, is absolutely never a waste. A heart for Jesus, even at the expense of costly things, things that the world regards as important and says that you ought to have, is never misused or never squandered. Um, but it's valuable and precious because we realize that um, Jesus truly has done so much for us. Even in this scene, the, the breaking of the alabaster box itself is a picture of the necessity of death, but also the destruction that death will bring upon Jesus to, to release his cleansing and atoning balm, his blood that will be released um, and with which he will anoint us. Um, but when he anoints us, it's not for burial, um, but it's for life. And so this woman did a beautiful, costly thing for Jesus. And he will do a beautiful and costly thing for us. So then after this, Jesus is then sold by Judas, just like the disciples suggested that they sell the alabaster box. Um, and in the end, ironically, Jesus is very much like that alabaster box because he then is distributed to the poor, which is us. Moving on, they celebrate the Passover. This is from verses 12 to 26. Um, they celebrate it in the upper room. Jesus gives his disciples instructions and they follow them. Um, and Jesus is then going to reframe uh, or reinterpret the Passover as being accomplished in his very person. And this is the royal meal at the inception of the kingdom, which is to be inaugurated. Um, and in the middle of the celebration, um, Jesus then drops a bomb and tells his disciples that one of them will betray him. Um, so just as a kind of a mental picture, imagine being on a marriage retreat or seminar, whether you're married or unmarried, doesn't matter, but just imagine being on a marriage retreat and uh, you've, you've had a long day of working on your marriage and you're having a good time at this retreat 
um, and you're at dinner and you're just enjoying yourselves, you're, fellowship, you're kind of having fellowship with others. And then the retreat leader calls everyone's attention and then dead serious says, one of you on this retreat is going to cheat on your spouse. Now, I'm sure you could imagine the kind of intensity and confusion and shock uh, that would instantly fill the room if someone had said something like that. And I think that's something like what the disciples might have felt. And when Jesus says, uh, one who is dipping the bread with me or one who is eating with me is going to be the one to betray me, uh, this uh, heightens the extremity of the betrayal. Uh, because sharing a meal, even to share the same bowl uh, with someone, signified a closeness of relationship and a deepness of friendship that is going to be violated. And again, it points back to Psalm 41, but in verse 9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The betrayal here is very extreme. But what is more extreme is that Jesus doesn't then stop the meal and say, none of you are going to have fellowship with me anymore. How many of us don't uh, entertain betrayers and liars? Now, he does make clear that it's not going to end well for the betrayer. And on top of that, after supper, he then announces that uh, all the disciples are going to desert him. But in light of this and knowing this, he continues the meal and he continues fellowship with them. And this is his deep commitment to his mission, um, but it's also his deep commitment to them. It's commitment to them um, and it's commitment in spite of them because he knows what is going to happen next and what they will end up doing to him. So I don't think it's accidental that the meal kind of begins and ends with Jesus telling them that they're going to desert him um, because I think the point here is to show that um, he still allows them to take part in him, to fellowship with him. He, he maintains intimacy even though he is going to be betrayed and deserted. Um, and this is the nature of the king that we have. He is one who knows our failure to be faithful to him. And he's one who understands even more deeply than we do just how unfaithful we really are. Yet he doesn't discontinue fellowship or cancel us, but he commits to us further and deeper still. He doesn't just turn around and say, you're a mess, get out of my sight. But he commits himself to us and to our mess. Sometimes it can feel as though the worse we are or the worse we perceive ourselves to be, um, the further and further Jesus wants to move away from us. Um, but his nature is the opposite, that somehow when he sees us in need, he moves closer and deeper into relationship with us. And this is how we must think of him. It, it, it kind of goes against our natural inclination to think we're disgusting or we're not good people. God must want to be further from us. But actually, 
Jesus in his love is one that moves closer to us. Um, and he demonstrates this closeness of relationship by in- introducing what we now call the, the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and he takes bread and breaks it and distributes it among them. He says, take this as my body. Um, and we kind of typically understand take this as my body as, or, or um, the, the, the brokenness here as uh, Jesus' body being broken. Um, but, but I would say the, the, the gospel accounts... Um, would kind of maintain that it's not so much the breaking of Jesus' body um, because he breaks it, he gives it out, he distributes it, and then he speaks what he speaks. Um, so when in kind of a 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, 24, uh, in the King James Version, it says, my body broken for you, which has become quite popular, that is kind of a translational variant that isn't necessarily true to the Greek. Um, so it's not necessarily the breaking of Christ's body, because his body wasn't necessarily broken, his bones weren't broken, but rather, um, this points to the distribution of his body as a pledge and a promise uh, of Jesus' real and abiding presence. So, the breaking and the distribution signify his real and abiding presence that is given to us. And then with the cup, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which points back to Exodus uh, 24 verses 8 where Moses takes the blood of the sacrifice and then uh, confirms the covenant between God and man and he throws it on the people and he says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So when we take the cup, uh, we share in a new era of relationship between God and man that is bought by our king who voluntarily goes to his death. Um, He becomes our covenant sacrifice and pours out his blood for us. Um, And we actually get to take part in a new era of humanity um, and a a, a new relationship with God. So so next time we take communion, we kind of ought to think um, that actually Jesus is present with us um, and by dying, He sheds his blood so that we can have relationship with him. And that is the kind of great significance of taking the Lord's Supper, taking communion. In verse 25, when he says he will not again drink um, of of wine, the fruit of the vine, wine, um, until he drinks it new in the kingdom, um, this is a promise of resurrection after death. And points to when all creation, um, under God's rule and God's reign, is going to be restored. And also points to the the feast, um, when Jesus again will take up another cup uh, in Revelations 19, uh, 6 to 9. It's a new meal, a new uh, um, or a completed meal in which Jesus again will take the cup. So he no longer takes the cup on earth. Uh, to point to the fact that he will take the cup again in the future. So in contrast to the fact that he will soon be betrayed and deserted, um, and in contrast to the order of our world and the kingdom of our world, instead of cutting us off when we wrong him and hurt those around us, whether intentionally or accidentally, Jesus promises unbreakable friendship, and real relationship 
and closeness to us. Instead of a ruler who looks out for himself or the culture of me first and me, myself, and I, Jesus offers self-giving sacrifice in our place. Instead of the death and corruption that pervades every level of our existence, from the historical, political, economical, ecological, vocational, racial, social, relational, marital, psychological, sexual, mental, physical, spiritual, personal, from the macro to the micro level, Jesus promises a kingdom of resurrection life after his death and resurrection to believers um, in the future when he will raise all of us. And in a world that cannot grant you true hope with all its policies and its initiatives and optimism that humanity somehow will get better if we keep building um, or believing that love wins, in a world that says look for hope in your money or in your career or even yourself, Jesus offers us personally lasting hope and assurance that he will bring his kingdom and restore all things and he banks his life on that. So that's the, the promises of these sections in the midst of everyone who is going to desert him. He is making promises. He is committing himself closer to everyone. Moving on um, from verses 27 to 52, we have um, uh, them in the garden. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are in the garden. And Jesus informs them in verse 27 that they will all desert him. Uh, that's what that means when he says they will all fall away. They are all going to leave him high and dry. Um, I think the, 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 the closer translation is they're going to be offended at him. Um, and Peter separates himself from the group and insists that he will not uh, deny Jesus or desert Jesus. And Jesus assures him in very real terms um, that, yes, he will. And the threefold denial um, indicates a complete disassociation from Jesus that Peter will exhibit. He's going to completely disassociate himself from Jesus. Um, but Peter is overconfident much like we can be, and he uh, pledges uh, loyalty to Jesus to death. And the rest of them say the same. Um, and I think this is well-intentioned, but in this portion of the text, there is a progressive loneliness and desertion that Jesus experiences. So at first he comes with all his disciples, and then he is taken, um, and then he takes three of them to an isolated place, and then he goes off by himself to pray, and then he is arrested and taken away. Um, and so there's kind of a gradient of isolation that we see. Um, and here we see a picture of Jesus in the full brunt of human weakness. He's visibly overwhelmed and distressed. I'm not sure if you've seen someone suffer a panic attack um, or if you've suffered yourself from a panic attack. There's th that kind of experience of kind of a download of fear and anxiety and dread. 
or if you've seen the blood drain from someone's face just after they have just lost a loved one, there is that moment of realization and, again, dread. And Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And so he is in anguish and he sinks under the weight of what is about to happen to him. He, he dreads the judgment um, and the cup that is to be poured out on him that will overwhelm him with forsakenness and pain. And for seeing this, he prays to his, to his father and addresses him in kind of an affectionate way to address your father. This is like him saying, Daddy. That's how he addresses him. And Hebrews 5, 7 describes to us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. So you can picture Jesus in the garden. Um, we see him on the floor loudly crying and just wailing to the Father to kind of say, if there's any other way that we can do this, um, please, let's do this. But there is no other way. Um, just like there's no other way to get the fragrance out of the alabaster box by breaking it, um, Jesus will too have to suffer. It's, it's of necessity that he will have to suffer. Um, yet he is truly submissive to it. Um, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, in the place of pleasure, rebelled against God. But Jesus, who is in the place of suffering, obeys God to the full. He is obedient to assuming suffering and danger on himself when he says, not my will, or not what I will, but what you will. Um, and this section is somewhat a pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, our Father, again, that affection between man and God, um, or Jesus and God, our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will, not mine, your will be done. When he speaks to the disciples, he says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And when he prays, when he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, um, he, he really meant it, because he prayed it himself. He then wakes up the disciples um, when the hour has come. He is then betrayed by Judas with a sign of friendship and is seized violently by the temple police. Um, and when he says, have you, have you come out against a robber with uh, swords and clubs, um, that's a response to their violent approach. Um, and this might be like uh, uh, if the police uh, came after Pastor E or Pastor Bertram um, with bully vans and guns. It's, it's kind of, they're kind of overcooking it, they're overdoing it. Um, and, he's, and they're treating him like a dangerous criminal. Um, and despite Peter's attempt at violence, um, everyone deserts Jesus. Um, even the naked man of verses 51 and 52. It, it seems like a random insert. Um, and some kind of commentators feel like uh, it, it, they, they feel that it might be uh, John Mark, the, the writer of Mark, who potentially may have been present. Um, but the point here is that Everyone deserted Jesus, even uh, um, a man who is only wearing kind of 
just kind of a bit of a loincloth and he is almost very desperate to escape from Jesus's fate or any association from Jesus so much so that he runs away naked every single person left him completely deserted completely high and dry now for the original readers of Mark who would have faced persecution um, this whole scene is the great encouragement necessary to face any trial uh, for the sake of Jesus knowing that our founder himself has faced the wounds of desertion and unjust treatment uh, would have been the driving force for patient obedience through horrific suffering um, and they clung to the fact that he will never leave us uh, nor forsake us especially as he's promised abiding presence so question how does the phrase, he will never leave us uh, nor forsake us, make you feel? You might think it's a nice thought, um, but that hasn't been my experience. Um, more often than not, I feel that the Lord isn't there. I feel that he doesn't understand. Response, we see Jesus here not only experiencing a level of suffering that we have been spared, but by his commitment to doing so, uh, we can know confidently that he will not forsake us. And not only in persecution, but this extends to all of life. Whether in the frustration of the everyday or in the difficult moments of significant um, pain and discomfort uh, or in moments of loneliness when we feel personally betrayed uh, he is well acquainted with it our king knows suffering on a deeply personal level and not just the dictionary definition of suffering he knows suffering more like a mother talking to another mother about their labor experience. Um, if you talk to me about the labor experience, um, I can tell you what happened on the day, um, but I don't have the, the depth of experience to fully identify with the labor suffering, the labor experience. But God, he comes down and he fully experiences human suffering, not sailing through it serenely and coming out unscathed and unbothered and cool like he's just popping his collar but what his suffering accomplishes um is actually bringing in one a kingdom of no suffering but two in the meantime he promises an irrevocable nearness and identification and sympathy for us and presence with us in the moments when you just want to give up this is the kind of king that we have. Whether you suffer loneliness or stress caused by the pandemic or for any other reason, or you suffer from friendlessness or the loss of a loved one, um, or you're struggling with temptation, or you're just struggling simply to just be a Christian, um, he understands. 
And not only does he understand and kind of just give you a pat on the back, he, he draws near to us by his spirit who makes his heart for us feelable um, and real and somewhat tangible. Um, but note that this doesn't promise to remove suffering from our experiences. The promise of Psalm 23 isn't that I take you around the valley of the shadow of death or I take you over the valley of the shadow of death. Um, but even through, even through it, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So it's not, I see what you're going through and I have nothing to do with it. It's, I see what you're going through and I am with you and I'm here to comfort you. And the Lord himself didn't avoid suffering. Even though he'd like to, he didn't jump over the suffering or spin his way around it. He went through it. And he demonstrates for us that uh, Bonhoeffer says the way to end suffering is to endure it, to go through it. Um, it's to endure it with full dependence on God and prayer to the Father, who we can call affectionately. Um, and he draws near. And prayer isn't um, God succumbing to our will. We don't tell God what to do. Um, but actually, it's him uh, conforming us and changing us um, to conform to, to his will. Um, and in his will, even when it's hard, um, that is where there is the greatest peace um, and victory that lies. The, the greatest peace and victory lies there even when we can't feel it um, and it can feel the opposite. So in our next section, where Jesus is condemned, rejected, and redeeming from verses 53 to 15, uh, to verses 15, um, the fullness of Jesus' rejection is realized, and he's not only rejected by his closest friends, but he's rejected by his countrymen. Um, so his, his own people, who are under the subjection of their enemies, uh, would rather hand Jesus over to their enemies uh, rather than keep him. They're, they, they're saying, we don't want you, uh, you're, you, you know, you're not the king, um, we would prefer to have you killed. And Jesus stands in what is an unfair trial. Uh, it takes place um, in, the middle of, in the middle of the night. I'm not sure many of you would imagine being in court at 3 a.m. Uh, it takes place during a national holiday, which is somewhat abnormal. Um, the, the ones, or the judges of the trial, are the ones who bribed Judas um, and conspired to arrest Jesus. So that's already a lose-lose. Um, and the witnesses they have, you know, which is very fundamental to Jewish law, that no one is convicted upon the, um, except upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. Um, but their testimony doesn't agree, um, which should mean that they, they can't establish a clear conviction um, but because they've already decided to kill him, they reach quite a quick decision. And in turn, Jesus is uh, dead in less than 24 hours. You know, talk about conspiracy. Uh, and throughout Mark, Jesus carefully avoids letting people know who he is. 
Um, but here, uh, not after a miracle, uh, not after when he shows that he is powerful over demons, not after feeding 5,000, uh, but in an unjust court situation where everyone in the room wants to kill him, that is when he, prob- he publicly proclaims who he is in verse 62. Um, and that is because, you know, we've been going through the book of Mark, all the miracles that we've seen him do um, are not the crucial miracle, um, but the, his death and resurrection are central to who he is and his mission. Um, but after his proclamation of who he is, he is then rejected and abused for saying who he is. While he's being prosecuted, um, Peter outside as well is, is rejecting him multiple times. He is, he is invoking curses on himself and potentially others. So he, he's, he's swearing on his mom's life and he's swearing on your mom's life too. And he didn't even mention Jesus' name. Um, he says, this man of whom you speak. Like, I don't, I don't even know his name. Like, who is, who, who is this guy? So this is complete, complete disassociation. That I have nothing to do with you. And after he realizes what he does, he, is, he just completely breaks down. Afterwards, Jesus is then handed over to the, the Gentiles, like he predicted in chapter 10, uh, verses 33. And... He is accused before Pilate, and then he is brought before the crowd. Um, And when Pilate calls him the king of the Jews, again, this is kind of a a proclamation of who he is. Um, And instead of everyone responding, long live the king, they respond with crucify him, kill him, um, and give us an, an extremist murderer instead. This should remind us of Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And when the people want Barabbas instead of him, there is the great swap happens, the the great exchange, the reality of redemption takes place. um, That Jesus offers us the full benefit of his rejection. Barabbas, who is the clear criminal, he escapes and Christ is condemned. The guilty one is set free and the perfect one is put on death row. He is the Passover lamb whose blood is shed. As we remember, they celebrated the Passover. He is the lamb's the lamb's blood who was shed so that God's judgment wouldn't come upon us, but actually it passes by us and is placed on him. 
This is the kind of king who takes the rap for his people. This is the great exchange. That because Jesus is betrayed, you are not forsaken. Even if you have betrayed someone. Even if you have, Jesus is not like you or me. But his nature is that. It's such that he will never turn his back on you. No matter what you've done or what you think you've done. So long as you bring your mess to him. Because he is accused, you who are guilty of sin stand innocent. Because he is rejected by God, you are accepted. Because he is condemned, you are redeemed and set free and liberated from all that restricts a relationship with God. You are free from sin and demonic oppression and restrictive religion. And we can now be fully human. Because he died, you can live. Christ takes upon himself the judgment for your sins with no strings attached um, except to believe and trust in him. So allow this text to reintroduce you to Jesus. Jesus is king. He is the anointed, celebrated, proclaimed king. He is not the kind of king who keeps his distance from us or loves his people with a diluted form of love. But he's the kind of king who comes down, not on a red carpet, but completely rejected and deserted and condemned so that we don't have to be. In our own human experience, he is not only acquainted with it, but he draws near to us in it. He teaches us to pray in dependence on God. And from there, we draw the strength and grace that he so freely gives us so that we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because he is with us. He promises unbelievable nearness and friendship and he gives us the surest the most lasting of hope humility love friendship redemption hope this is the kingdom of god this is the the offer that the king of the kingdom of god offers you and the king is Jesus Christ, son of the blessed, the son of man who, who we will see seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. So may our lives as his people be an all-encompassing devotion to him, looking nowhere else for salvation, nowhere else for hope, 
trusting him with our very lives, honoring him not as an add-on to our okay lives, but as our king who is over our lives and involved deeply. And he does so for our joy and for his glory. Um, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are king. And we thank you that you are not an earthly kind of ruler who is self-seeking, um, who provides a hope that is incomplete, who would cut us off um, because of our sin. But you are the kind of king um, who completely gives of yourself so that we may reap the full benefits of your suffering. And we thank you, Lord, that you are with us in our suffering. Grant us, Lord, to understand um, and be drawn deeper into your heart more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.